0: Welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yes. How you doing?
1: I'm a little out of sorts. I know. We're in a new location here. I know. A new a new permanent
0: location. That's right. Um, it's a good Jim Jarmusch film.
1: Uh, yeah, we're taking a permanent vacation to a new location. Yeah. Uh, you've moved into your very own uh, home, a home of your own, white picket, white picket fence. Mm, not the quite. Whole, the whole nine. Yeah. Um, uh, and yeah, you have a little office. I shouldn't say little, it's actually, it's plenty of room for us, mm-hmm. uh, for our enterprise. So on the one hand, I'm a little out of sorts, but I'm also very excited because we have a guest, a return guest that, uh, mm-hmm. that, um, I'm excited both because he's a cool guy who was on the podcast before, but also because he directed a movie that last time he was on, neither of us had seen. Right. And now we've both seen it. So it yeah. will be, he's we'll be
0: going to-, to outshine us all. There's no question about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Um, yeah. So that's how I am. Um but I don't want to waste any time actually. Um okay. I want to get into I want to get to our guest because mm-hmm. uh Afropro of absolutely nothing. Yeah. He has a story about the black dahlia to share with us. <laughs> and we, he started to tell it and then mentioned this might be good for the recording and we and I said, "Yes, let's do that." Yes. So, uh ladies and gentlemen, uh and wh- whoever else is listening, um the d- director of Room Two Thirty Seven, which will be available on uh, on demand starting March twenty ninth, and uh, in in some theaters as well uh, that that day or
2: the week after. No, I forgot. Didn't, yeah, well, uh, it it, did, it it premieres in New York on the twenty ninth. Okay, April fifth here in L A. And then okay. as the month of April goes on, the movie rolls out. Unlikely enough, across the country, all the way out to Anchorage, Alaska.
1: All right. Yeah, man. Uh, very excited. Well, okay. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the show, Rodney Asher.
2: Hey, thanks, guys. How's it going? It's it's good.
1: Um, now, this is, I think, maybe the first time... That, that can't be true. But until... You, we, you, we booked you to be on the show, but actually, like, booked you through the PR person, which is not, like, we are you normally, like, a sort of, you know, very ground-level operation. We talked to the person, but... Loosey-goosey, one could say. Yeah, but um, the the PR person for the film, um, uh, Sarah, I think. Uh, Well, there's Sarah and there's Marina. Anyway. They were very um,
2: intimidating. It's a machine.
1: Yeah. They contacted me, not knowing that you'd been on the show before, asking...
2: Uh, are they are they the first publicist that was that was desperate enough to book their unbookable guests well, to, to, to to rent to ring you guys up directly?
1: We've sought out guests where we were forced to go through their people before. Yeah. I think, but I think this was the first time that yeah, someone said, uh, like reached out and said, "Hey, would you like to have this, uh, my client on the show?" Ooh, and and we said, uh, "Yeah, we 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 know Rodney, great guy. We loved having him on anytime."
2: Know, for, for, for some for some reason, that's horribly embarrassing. But um. <laughs> Why would that
0: be embarrassing? Are you kidding? I can't
2: wait to think be referred that's, to as my client. Yeah, I think that's, <laughs> that's not by awesome. a lawyer or anything. Well, what a, difference, what a difference a year makes. I mean, it's, yeah. it, you know, because when last time I was on, you know, was just about a year ago, I think we. Because it was a little we, after Sunday. Yeah, so, so it, it was more than a year. Okay, maybe more than a year, maybe yeah. January or late January, mm-hmm. early yeah. February. And, you know, sometimes. Well, I don't know. This is the first time it's ever happened to me, but you know, the movie gets picked up, and then all of a sudden, you know, there are these people on the other end of your <laughs> th- that are emailing you and in, 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 in phoning you up who are now part of the operation, and it's an operation, yeah. Um, you know, which is weird because for the year and a half before that, you know, it's just me and Tim Kirk, you know, sw- um, pecking away, you know, at, at, at in my home studio. <laughs>
1: well, okay. I want to talk about room two, two room two thirty seven, but the audience is on the edge of their seats right now. They want to hear about the Black Dahlia.
2: Well, we could talk about we could talk about that. We could talk about the film's publicity team, <laughs> <laughs> if, if, if you want.
1: <laughs> have you discussed the Black Dahlia with uh, Marina and Sarah?
2: <laughs> no, was... no, but we actually we did have a really interesting conversation about um, whether or not you know, sort of that sense of catharsis you're supposed to get, you know, during a like a freudian psychoanalysis was you know a myth or not Uh
0: yeah yeah i'm fascinated by what it must be like to represent you because because you're just like it's like okay rodney so what you know we here's what here's the plan you're like that's interesting you know i was watching this news story the other day about about some grisly murder and just and it's like Okay.
2: Uh, oh. Do you want to be on this show? I don't know. What about <laughs> Hitler? And just... Well, it's not like. Well, first of all, it's not like you know. I hired them. It was right. IFC is distributing the film, and mm-hmm. you know, part. You know, they, they're 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 trying to get it out as wide as possible. So, you know, I get, these are folks that work with, and you know, they've been they they've been great at getting the word out, though. Um, mm-hmm. You know. Um Okay, so, <laughs> well, I, I still want to hear about the Black Dahlia. You know, yeah, we, yeah. We, well, we were talking about. Wait, 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 well, we were I talking about how we
1: got up. onto the. Oh, we were talking about asylum films. Yeah. Before In, we started recording, and the Black Dahlia versus Mockbusters
2: and Black Dahlia, the Black Dahlia, Transformers, Transmorphers. Yeah. Yes.
1: And then I mentioned when the Black Dahlia came out <laughs> that I had re- somewhat recently read the the Black Dahlia James Ellroy's novel and found it not as it didn't live up to I think the, its reputation
2: for me. And then you. Mention another book. Yeah, well, I was excited about this one Black Dahlia book. My wife, uh, I guess, checked it out. Of the, I think she checked it out from the library because we don't have it. We don't, we don't have it around the house anymore, which is just as good because we've got a two-year-old, and this is the most horrifying <laughs> book you could possibly imagine. And it, it looks like, you know, a coffee table art book. Um, and it was inspired by this other book, which was written by The Son of a Cop, and the son believes that his father was the I've Black Dahlia killer. Yeah. Hmm. And he goes on further. In, and I think in sort of a fairly off the cuff way in that first book, says that you know, his dad was really into Man Ray and the Surrealists. And he saw um, the Black Dahlia crime as some sort of um, surrealist piece of art. Uh-huh. And then there were these two, guys, there was these two people, uh, a man and a woman, who were really into surrealism in the history of surrealism. And they read that book and they said, well, that's interesting. Let's take a look at the history of surreal art and compare it to the most astonishingly horrifying crime scene photos you could possibly imagine. And what is the freakiest, most horrifying thing you've ever seen is, you know, a crime scene photo of the black Dahlia. And she's kind of cut into sections Mm -hmm. with like a Man Ray photo where, half of the image where like half of a woman's body is kind of blacked out from the way it's framed or the way that she's draped and like you put them side to side and it looks like there's a really really strong connection and it goes deeper and deeper to things that they think might have inspired the crime or then the fact that all these artists knew about the crime and were sort of dealing with it in their art after the fact so man
1: ray was the black Diamond. no man ray was
2: <laughs> friends with the guy uh-huh. really and man ray and duchamp was it duchamp or see i'm gonna, I'm gonna start talking about a subject that i'm yeah not really right about the end of that that knowledge. i'm not that i'm not really an expert in um was it duchamp or dolly you know and i know it's surrealism and da- and dadaism and they're totally different things and I've, i i've i've gotten incredibly poor um you know, education or, you know, just, not, or, not, or knowledge of art history, but, you know, there's like a painting <laughs> near the end, you know, that you're supposed to see like through like some sort of viewing device. And it looks like you're looking through the bushes at, you know, at, at, at you know, sort of a cube, semi-cubist nude woman for, for the life of me, it looks like the black out black out wow. murder scene. Um And... It was actually one thing that you know me and Tim you know may have t- we were talking about. We said, "Well, what do you want to do after Room 237? And this seemed like it could be a really interesting one. Except, I think ultimately we decided to move away from it because it's just so depressing. Yeah. To mm-hmm. like, because a big part of working on Room Two Thirty Seven meant that I had to watch The Shining again and again and again and again <laughs> and look at this shot and that shot and this detail. And I love The Shining, so I'm like totally happy living in that world, but I wasn't quite ready to commit to a year sure. and a half of looking at, you know, <laughs> these, these incredibly depressing, horrible crime photos. Yeah. But, um, Hey, there's an idea for someone out there. That's, a good <laughs> one. That's for free. Everybody. <laughs> no finders fee. Nothing.
0: It is. It's interesting. I, I, Every once in a while, like, and I, I know David has had this. Uh, I, you know, I assume you've had it. You just did. Um, I have like maybe three ideas in my head of like what would make a really, really good movie uh, or TV series or whatever. And I'm just like, oh, man, somebody should do that. <laughs> like, and it's not even so much like, it's like, uh, I just want somebody to take this idea of mine and run with it, admittedly, the way I think they should do it. But I, just like, here I'm giving you the idea. You can. I just want to see it. That's all I want. If you do it right, I just want to see it. I don't need any money. I don't need any credit. Although that'd be kind of neat. Um, I just want to see it done the way I have it in my head. Has it happened? No. Oh my no. <laughs> There's basically. I, I read a biography of uh, Buster Keaton, and he had a, he had a very interesting relationship with a guy whose name now I've kind of forgotten. I think his last name is uh, Rimbauer. And he's and that basically it's this fascinating story about this guy who had who had abs- who's an exhibitor who had a little a little theater. He had absolutely no respect for film. It got him money. And so what he would often do, he would get movies and then cut parts out of them so that they'd be shorter so that he could show movie, more movies and get more money. That's what he did. It literally just a kind of a sleaze mm-hmm. and no respect for art at all. And then he stumbled ass backwards onto some Buster Keaton stuff in the sixties when no one was talking about him, nobody cared about him. And uh and then and he was showing those and people were people were interested in seeing them. And then somehow he got connected with Buster Keaton himself. And so he he went to Buster Keaton's house. 'Cause he wanted more of these films. So he goes out and and in like uh inglorious bastards fashion, basically he had a garage full of these deteriorating uh, what it, what's the film like nitrate or the, the really flammable one was yeah.
2: nitrate, yeah. Yeah.
0: And so like so they're deteriorating and like it just it smells like chemicals. And Buster Keaton's just got like this cigarette dangling from his <laughs> lips. So he's just like, Oh yeah, so there's a general over here and this and the guy's like, Okay, step one. We need to not blow up. <laughs> step two, it's like, he first he first was like, oh my gosh, I've got access to all this stuff. I'm going to make so much money. But step one, we need to get these in better condition. And the more he got involved in, for his own gain, restoring these films, the more he grew to appreciate film in general. And so... And the more he did this, ostensibly for his own gain... So the scales fell from his eyes. The scales fell from his eyes. And in doing so, he resurrected interest in Buster Keaton. Like, that's a very Ed Woodian type story, except, ever, you know, uh, there's an actual character... No offense to the movie Ed Wood, I love it, but there's an actual character arc in the part of, uh, of the, the Rimbauer character. And then, I don't know, it's, I think there's a really interesting story there, and I think someone should make that movie. You're welcome. You can, you can do that, Rodney. That's that's for you, buddy. Well,
2: thanks, man. Uh,
1: now I want to. Uh, I, I do want to talk about Room Two Thirty Seven, but I want to real quickly mention our sponsor, Tweaked Audio. Um, uh, you can go to tweakedaudiocom uh, slash pretension, and that'll get you. Uh, professional quality earbuds in a variety of styles and colors and when you when you use that at pretension portal or sorry slash pretension porter portal uh you get one third off and and free shipping they're awesome stuff we use them we endorse them uh so go to tweaked com slash pretension all right that was the most restrained one of those i've done i know we got nice nice
2: work
0: (laughs) thank you um no one's gonna buy anything now though they like the oh. entertainment aspect. Oh,
1: okay, I've had people complain though too that I go to go on too long. I usually make a big thing, Rodney, out of the tweaked audio uh, spot. Oh, yeah? I hear
0: this shit every week, and it's incredibly entertaining to me. If people don't find it entertaining, then I'm clearly you're not play. hearing it correctly. You should buy yourself a pair of tweaked audio earbuds. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: okay, so uh, room two thirty-seven. I want I, I want to talk about it because I like we said when you were on last year. Um, we weren't able to see it it was almost it was like down to the to the wire where i think you were going to be able to get us a uh, a a dvd and then uh uh I, i guess ifc or someone said said no that you couldn't get us a dvd and so we did the episode without having seen the film and now we've both seen it
0: I had seen a number of your other of your other works, yeah, right. which I thought we were were that. wonderful. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think at the time there was like it was it was kind of iffy on if it was going to get distribution. It was just this thing that had been talked about at Sundance, and no one knew if anything was going to happen with it. But and I so, had seen. Yeah, 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 right. But they didn't know when.
2: Well, I, I uh, you know, the, the last year or so has been kind of a blur mm-hmm. uh, on, <laughs> on my side. Um, certainly after Sundance. There, there, there were a lot of back and forths, and I uh-huh. think we, and then we didn't show it. You know, any, you know that we weren't sending any screeners, and we were negotiating with IFC and other folks, and then we didn't show it publicly again in, until the next festival. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was probably between the two. Yeah, you know when we talked, um, but you know we got we 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 got uh, we got we got to spend some time with the S from Hell. <laughs> yeah,
1: and. Um... So, I I think, uh, talking about your other short films, I think that should have prepared me for what Room 237 is. Because, uh, for those who don't know, Room 237 is a documentary about people's different interpretations or even conspiracy theories surrounding the movie The Shining, directed by Stanley Kubrick. Is that a good summation of what the movie... Sure, man. Just the the basic thing. And
0: there's the caginess when you start talking Uh, to Rodney about (laughs) what his films mean. Because, S from hell last year... I was like, what about this? And you're like, yeah, I suppose. <laughs> Being all cryptic and frightening.
2: Well, but, well here's I, the th- Okay. I, I didn't realize I, w- I, I was either of those things. <laughs> <laughs> In the best way possible, of course. But, you know, I, I've been talking about this movie a lot the last for, 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 for the last while. And sometimes I'm afraid that I over-explain, hmm. you know, what I was trying to do. Because, you know, clearly we're trying to do a little bit more than talk Explicitly and only about you know what Stanley cooper's the shining is about, mm-hmm. but you know I have to wonder sometimes whether you know part of the reason that the shining resonates so strongly, and people you know spend so much time trying to trying to figure it out isn't because you know Stanley Kubert kept his mouth shut, which you know I've been mm. totally unable to do
1: mm. <laughs> well, what I was <laughs> going to say is that what I, what I didn't anticipate but should have is that not only is the movie an incredibly interesting documentary, it's also very funny. Mm-hmm. And it's also, even though it's not a horror film, I find it very creepy. Like, it has this this tone to it. I was telling Tyler the story, because I saw it a few months ago. He just got to see it this week. Um, I, I was telling the story. I watched it uh, late at night. And I, <laughs> I finished it, and I was going to go to bed, but I had to take my my dog out to, to you know, to relieve himself. And so it was like... One thirty in the morning, and I'm standing out there in the dark, in in the front yard of my apartment building, and I just sort of felt like I just kept looking over my shoulder, like I had this sense, <laughs> this just sort of creepy sense from the movie, and I uh, uh, I really enjoyed that aspect of it. Na- NASA's
2: got their eye on you, David. <laughs> well, well, thanks, but but I mean, you know, when I was working on the film, you know, well before, you know, doing the first interview, me and me and Tim Kirk. Spent, you know, six months to a year researching these theories and in 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 talking about what our approach was going to be. And I mean, I always found that stuff, you know, really eerie and kind of frightening. And you know, I I my son was, you know, one was you know plus or minus one years old while I was working on the movie. So a lot of the time I had to edit the film, you know, was after nine was you know between nine p.m. and two or three a.m. So it would be one or two in the morning when I'm reading about you know these cryptic allusions to you know genocide or the holocaust mm-hmm. or you know th- where there's a lot of more sort of things that get into like magic and the occult than yeah. actually get into room 237 maybe we touched on that stuff a little bit so I would often be very unnerved and find it very creepy and eerie and you know that was a present that I wanted to pass along <laughs> to, yeah. to, to everyone else but I mean, I thought that there was something very interesting about the fact that even reading an analysis of this horror movie was scary in and of itself. And, well, if, and, and if that was something that we could push harder, I mean.
1: I, I wonder, and this is something that is just sort of occurring to me now because you talked about um, Kubrick's uh, silence on on the films, uh, on, on his films and this one in particular. Uh and it almost gives the impression maybe that like these weird things that people are seeing and they're not all completely crazy. Like there's oh, no, cases no. made for a lot of them yeah. that they're not, that it would be almost too literal to say that, that Stanley Cooper put these in here. It's almost, you get the impression that maybe it's the film itself that is somehow like haunted or sentient or possessed or something. And I think that's sort of where that
2: creepiness came from for me. Oh, well, that's a great way to put it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the, the shining in some ways becomes like this object, you know, that people are meditating on. And uh-huh. There was there was something that happened really weird sort of in the tail end, you know, of the process where I was still researching and reading new ideas or people's websites that I hadn't come across before. And I found one where somebody discovered at a couple of points within the film this little off-screen voice. Um and he had this whole theory about what it meant, and you know, I listened to it a couple of times. And I go, okay, I guess I can hear that, and I've never noticed it before. Uh-huh. And then I was rereading Julie Kearns' website, and she's the woman who um, talks about the Minotaur and made yeah. those amazing maps. And she's and in one of her later entries that were was that's just a month or two before I was reading it at this time because you know these things are continually being updated, and all these folks are continuing their 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 work. She heard this voice and started talking about what it meant, and there was no indication that she had read this other guy's mm-hmm. you know, website. So, the implication to me was that the first guy, you know, was just concentrating on the movie with such intensity that he caused this anomaly to manifest itself, and now everyone can see it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it
0: is, it, you know, it's. I did only. I did only watch it. Uh, Yesterday, and there is, and I, while I would not go as far as say that I was like creeped out by it, I was definitely captivated, and one could say mesmerized and invigorated, and uh, you know, and you know, I apologize if you are like embarrassed by uh, compliments, but I think it's a wonderful film that everyone, everyone who likes movies should see. Um, and one of the things that's so excited about it on the show, we once did an episode, and it's a topic we, we return to over and over again, is the idea of thinking too much. About a movie, and uh, and you and you watch this, and my I had a couple of responses. One was, you know, because th- some of those some of the theories are, out, I'll say outlandish. I won't say stupid. They're outlandish, and little things like it's like it's clearly a skier, skier, like it's it, that's oh, but, what it is. Well, oh, and but,
2: stuff like that. But what is a skier poster doing in a summer resort?
0: Right, and so. That's the thing. Is so, like you have your <laughs> your initial response, and it's this response of like, "Well, I didn't see it, so clearly it must. I didn't see this, so clearly it must not be there." Um, or it's like, oh, you're really, you know, you're really uh, reaching." But it's like, "Well, you're not reaching if you just naturally, instinctively believe this thing." You know, it's not like, "All right, let's let me try to think of the weirdest theory." Like nobody set out to do that, and just people just saying this stuff with just total conviction and by the end of the film you realize how convicted you know how convinced they are of this stuff and how it has sort of impacted their their lives and and so just people who are this affected by art and so like initially like when you like david said there are some theories that make more sense to who whoever the the viewer may be and some that don't but by the end of it you're just like who who cares if I agree or not? Like I might have my own, and it's and there are times I know that there are times in my life, and I'll t- I'll probably tell the story a little later when I come out of a movie, I'm like, oh, clearly it's about this, and pe- people people like, what well, what the hell are you talking about? That's not it at all. And just like it's like, this is what art should be, this amazing thing. Like I remember leaving. Who um, robs themselves of of this opportunity to think about movies and art in general this much?
1: I I, I often this, and I'll let. Rodney addressed that, but when I want to talk about that exact <laughs> experience. I saw Shadow of the Vampire with a couple of friends, which is a movie that I love uh, to this day. And um, and normally when I come to sort of a conclusion about what a movie means what its themes are, it takes me a while of thinking about it. But I left there with this concrete idea of what this movie was about that I still hold on to, uh, which is the idea that um, uh, it's almost foolish for an artist to actually try and capture and wrangle into his art truth like full truth unfiltered yeah Uh, art is artifice and therefore it can't it can't fully capture truth it can only get the shadow of the vampire whereas Hmm. the vampire being truth is too dangerous and too mean and too big to control that was my idea the moment that i left the shadow of the vampire i ended up writing an essay on it in college it's it's a movie that i love but i was trying to convince my friends that this is about and they're like ah, i see it and I, it probably didn't help that i was on acid the first time <laughs> i saw shadow the vampire but i've seen it many time many times since then sober and i stick by that oh interpretation.
0: no qu- no question about it i mean just this idea of like it's like oh you you think you can you think you can capture this yeah. this is hardly your picture any longer
1: but uh, <laughs> exactly i'm sorry but uh did you have anything to say? to Yeah, what Tyler sorry, said exactly I, it's, about it's your more just—it's not a question. It's yeah. more just
0: kind of my my reaction to it. Is just so exciting uh, to to be watching and so invigorating.
2: Well, no, no I mean, I really, really appreciate that, and I, I don't have a ton to add except that those were some of the conversa- kinds of conversations that you know me and Tim would have when we were first bouncing this around, or you know, I would do an interview and we'd listen to it back and talk about how excited we were to hear these guys and <laughs> to like sometimes you could really hear kind of the thrill of the hunt in their voice. Absolutely. That's and, a great and, way of and, thinking. And, describe, yeah. and like they describe their discover as like a safari, you know, it's like I came to the clearing and there it was. And then I, and, you know, I did find that very contagious. And, you know, I, I would kind of have flashbacks to, you know, maybe sort of college and late night conversations probably, you know, for me back then it was more about music, mm-hmm. you know, and that we would play something and talk about, you know, what a genius what, 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 what kind of genius went into the inspiration of this piece of music and how logical it was and then, you know, stumbling upon something that was the next step beyond. And that would be the most kind of urgent, exciting thing that we could imagine. You know, it would be three or four in the morning and we would have class in a couple of hours. But it wouldn't matter because, you know, there was like a euphoric quality to mm-hmm. to, to sharing these things and well, finding someone that you could share it with and who... Understood and who understood where you were coming from. And you're just building on each other. Like one person says something that just opens up
0: this whole other, uh, this whole other opportunity. It's like, okay, we've got now two more hours just on what you said. Like this is exciting.
1: <laughs> so you mentioned genius, and that's another thing that really surprised me about the film is that a number of the people who have these uh, elaborate, and meticulous theories are not necessarily cinephiles, other than The Shining, and. Uh, I I, I found myself wondering is is it because The Shining is such a like even to someone who is not uh, necessarily the most sophisticated uh, or uber sophisticated uh, film watcher is so evidently a work of genius that when there is something strange like the chair that's against the wall in one shot and isn't in the next Mm -hmm. uh, it's hard to just write it off as a mistake whereas if these sort of If people were having these sort of theories about a a, a sort of mid-rate horror movie like The Amityville Horror or The Omen, both movies that I kind of like, by the way, it would be easier to just say, like, well, that's just a continuity error. But because because uh, even—I'll repeat myself—even to a non-cinephile, The Shining is so clearly a work of genius that everything seems like it must be intentional.
2: Yeah, no, there's a lot to that. And, you know, I think it's fair to say that most of these folks— are not the kind of movie watchers that the three of us are. That mm-hmm. Their DVD collections are probably not as big as ours, uh-huh. but you know, to a person, not only do they recognize The Shining as something special, they're very familiar with Kubrick's you know oh. filmography and his reputation, you know, as you know as as one of the masters. And they talk about you know him as a perfectionist and him as a genius, and also they're very aware. I think Bill Blakemore might say it more specifically than anyone else that you know he had sort of an unprecedented amount of control about the production, which are all things that lead you to see more intentionality in the small details you know and the mistakes are always kind of interesting because like I was teaching a I was teaching a film editing class while I was working on the movie, and um one exercise I would like to do is. Like I would show scenes from films that I really liked by, you know, directors I was really into. And because we were talking about editing, I would sort of concentrate on... I, I, would, I would show scenes from movies that looked like mistakes in some way. Or they broke rules that a semester before we had talked about how important they were. Hmm. And then say, well, what's the implication <laughs> of this thing? And, like... You know, th- throwing out you know in Soderbergh's *The Limey*. I love that. Yeah, there's that one astonishing you know dialogue scene where he's where Terrence Stamp is talking to his daughter's you know old acting teacher, and they're having this conversation that if you listen to it feels more or less linear, but if you're watching it, it's going forwards and backwards through three entirely different locations. Uh-huh. Um, and it's, you know, every cut is breaking not only screen direction, but also time and place. You know, they're going from a living room to the beach to a restaurant, from day to night, from left to right. And like every cut is a jump cut, uh-huh. but the dialogue is continuing sort of undisturbed. Um, you know, so clearly after the third or fourth of these, you understand this is not a mistake. Uh-huh. You know, you may, it, it may suck, but. <laughs> <laughs> it was certainly done it was certainly done on purpose i wrote a paper about that sequence
0: actually oh, yeah? um that uh especially that like it's something that in the moment it's it's surprising to me how quickly i just accepted it um and that only when the film is over do you look back and realize oh okay this was they went, to, like, over the course of the evening, these two characters went to these three different locations, and surely they talked about a number of things, because the whole film winds up being, like, him recounting his trip, his, his Los Angeles adventure, one could say, <laughs> uh, in his mind, and, like, these are the locations, I remember those, and I may not remember all the little things, I remember the primary discussion that we had, I don't remember where it was, so it was in all of them, really and i remember just being like when i saw that cuz that's it was still it was a 99 film but i saw it in 2000 and it was still fresh in my mind and it was early on when i was thinking about editing and just like the things you could do with it and uh and that sequence i was like oh this is it, it makes it makes no sense and yet it makes so much sense at the same time
2: and it played in multiplexes all over the world for people who thought they were buying a ticket to an action movie. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's, a, that's 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 an amazing moment in looking at. So 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 for me, looking at what seems like a mistake or a hundred mistakes in a row was a really fruitful way to try to get into what is Soderbergh doing in this movie, um, and it looks like it worked. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, in a similar way folks kind of zero in on things that look like mistakes, you know, in the shining and it's, it's, it's a fair jumping off point. And I know like another thing that I would you know talk to students about is, you know, and if you're going to try something like this, something very messed up and deliberately breaking, you know, some of these rules that we've been teaching you, you're going to want to do the other parts of this scene as well as you can. Because if, the costumes are cheap and the lighting is bad, it's out of focus, the dialogue is stupid, the the performances are bad, the music is inappropriate, then we might not grant you this pass on the jump cuts and Mm -hmm. and assume that there's anything special happening here. But, you know, talking about this scene in the limey, the performances are amazing and the script is really good and the only thing that's really weird, you know, is this editing strategy. And it goes to something that it's it's about giving the filmmaker the benefit
0: of the doubt for any number of reasons. One could be other elements in the film we're watching, or it could be as as the the people in room two thirty seven discuss their previous knowledge of Stanley Kubrick. It's like eh, he doesn't make mistakes. He may he may not make the best choices all the time, but he doesn't. But he makes choices. That's all he ever does. Um, and uh, like people talk about him the way. People talk about God, uh, and just and I think he probably would like that sort of thing. But um, and that brings me to uh, one of the s- stories that I that I wanted to tell years ago. Uh, the night before my wedding, in fact, uh, I went and saw Land of the Dead with a bunch of with my my groomsmen. I was there. Yeah, you were there. Yeah, right and on. so, because part of me is just like, because while I was not frightened to get married, part of me was just like, this is a big deal, right? I'm going to go see a zombie movie, <laughs> and so. Um, ironically i could have seen mr and mrs smith but i saw that yeah. on honeymoon anyway so um it's uh and afterwards i was walking out with my with my groomsmen and i was immediately like thinking about like all the different elements of the film cuz I, I think that was probably the last good like zombie movie that romero made he's made movies since then i haven't heard, seen diary way. of the dead or i i saw survival of the dead and that was uh yeah. not great Um, Land of the Dead was kind of cool I like like Land of the Dead quite a bit and I I walked out and and I liked it and David liked it my groomsmen thought it was only okay and I was like oh but there's so much going on there like I mean it's like uh, it's you know there's discussion of class warfare which i had heard about but there's also or like a class system it's like but also i mean there's so much stuff about like american foreign policy in there and my friend's like what the hell are you talking about (laughs) oh
2: but that's absolutely in there it's absolutely and george Romero has been working that way from exactly zombie film after zombie film there you know and dawn of the dead is the one that really wears wears it on its sleeve yeah um and i've well, and, and that's another case that judging from his past right. work, we there's, no, there's no reason not to assume that even just thinking about social political yeah. um, metaphors in Land of the Dead, like even if you don't see them at the time, say, that's funny, he was doing it in his last three zombie movies. Yeah. What do you think that might have been? And there's always been, you know, symbolism in Kubrick films, you know, go almost if not every single one. Mm-hmm. So... When, when, when you leave The Shining and you're kind of scratching your head about it, you know, trying to figure out some of the symbolism is a perfectly natural place to go. Mm. Uh,
1: that leads me to another question: um, Was there a decision made, uh, like a conscious decision made? Uh, did you ever consider only using footage from The Shining in making? Because you use actually footage from. Uh, uh, probably all of Kubrick's films at, at one point, right? I'm not sure. And some I mean, that aren't his. And and yeah, all, yeah, All sorts of stuff. It's yeah. it's
2: and, and and a lot of the other stuff is kind of horror or genre movies, which mm-hmm. you know because although The Shining is many kinds of films, I always sort of associate it with kind of culty horror movies, just from where my head was at, you know, in the eighties and nineties. Um, I don't think I ever seriously considered assembling it only out of The Shining um, I mean in fact in some of the earlier visions of what this film could have been I thought there was going to be much more original footage and that there were going to be scenes where someone dressed up like Kubrick was meeting with the military and that uh-huh. we were going to rent out a movie theater and shoot an audience that um, you know I in, in The S From Hell you know, there's a ton of repurposed existing footage, though so there's a couple of reenactments in there too in a in a percentage basis there's more reenactments in the s yes from hell than in um excuse me than in room two thirty seven so the form of it you know kind of evolved as we as we were going i um, i I mean we set out to do it in a way that was halfway challenging but i i think Assembling it only out of footage from the shining would have been one step <laughs> beyond what we what we could have pulled off
0: well and as much as I don't relish the idea of analyzing a filmmaker's film in front of him uh <laughs> it also i mean like you said like you don't want it to, you didn't want it to just be about the shining and if you had f- only used footage from the shining, then obviously people would have been like, oh look at this movie. look at this documentary about this one movie and nothing else mm-hmm. um and incidentally like even if you had stuck with only Stanley Kubrick, then it becomes about the shining and Stanley Kubrick. But but by incorporating these other things, it winds up being about a much bigger thing than just the shining, just Stanley Kubrick. And there, and an argument could be made that it's fine making a documentary about Stanley Kubrick because you'll go insane. And, uh, (laughs) but like by incorporating like footage from some, you know, there's a scene from like all the president's men in there. And, uh, and so at that point, like you can walk into this film and, it starts it seems like it's this one thing, but in actuality it's about everything. It's about art in general. It's about our response to, to art. And so like uh
2: so that's that's how I took that. Well well thanks. I mean certainly we wanted it to be more about just the shining, although, you know, as demonstrated, the shining is a topic that is infinitely expandable. <laughs> yeah. Um but Why' you go the shiny and and I also wanted it to be in some small way a puzzle of its own, mm-hmm. you know that in sometimes some of this footage works creating connections above and beyond things that are the connections that are happening you know strictly based on um the audio track you know that you know sometimes there's a burden when. You know, you've got a documentary that's driven by interviews that it's just kind of an illuminated radio show Mm -hmm. um, and that the video track doesn't add anything else. So although there are plenty of times when, you know, we're literally and sometimes painfully literally illustrating Mm -hmm. exactly what people are saying, it was important – Like, I would get ideas, you know, about implications of scenes or connections that I would make. And even though I only have one line in the movie at the very end, um, I wanted to try to fit some of those in there. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes, again, sometimes it's illustrating what people are saying. Sometimes it is sort of subjectively capturing the mood. Or other times, it's a connection that I might have made, Um, you know, trying to link this person's idea or this scene in the movie to some other thing.
0: Well, because that's the thing is like you're not – I mean, yes, it is a documentary. And so, of course, you're documenting what other people might think and the fact that people can think so many things about one film. But you're a person as well. And, of course, and you're focusing months if not years of your life on this one thing. Uh, You should get a say. I'm fine with that. (laughs) Like if it's a documentary about opinions, then I'm perfectly fine with it with you incorporating your own.
2: Yeah, Well, thank you. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I give you permission to do what you what is already done. Well, great. But yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, you know, this is, you know, the audience is watching me watch them watch Kubrick yeah. watch Stephen King. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. You know, it's my eye. It's your eyes on my eyes on their eyes on his film about <laughs> these <laughs> things, and you know, those layers kind of build up and you know get kind of. Horribly complicated.
1: But they also, as they, what's was really interesting. Uh, I'm trying to corral this thought. So last week, Tyler and I did. Uh, we we talked about uh, documentaries about quirky people. Your American movies and your King of Kong's and things like sure, that. Sure. We talked about the line of like some of these do feel like they're maybe having a little fun at the expense of their subjects, and some are very much on board. Um, and that you're talking about layers. It, it becomes. It becomes more complicated but also becomes more convincing as the movie goes on. And I, and I, and I, I, for one thing, I really appreciate that you take these people as seriously as you do. But I like the approach that I think, uh, I'll use as one example one of the guys, uh, talks it's very early on in the film. The example he gives of, um, a scene in which the way that the hotel manager is staying makes the like file thing on his desk file tray on his desk look like a giant golden phallus and and like you introduce that early enough that i think that i could still kind of be like well that's silly and then the guy goes on to make all these cases for there's a lot of stuff about hedonism and like uh, sexual exhibitionism going on in this movie like he's clearly
2: reading a playgirl which is insane (laughs) yeah (laughs) like it's insane that i didn't know that before well and when he introduces that shot lineup he laughs too. Uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, he yeah, says it's true. hilarious. It's a joke. Yeah. It's a serious joke. And it uh-huh. points to some disturbing themes, yeah. but at that moment, it's kind of it's kind of, it's kind of silly. He realizes, and that. it's such
0: a nice it's such a nice payoff, like uh, as as kind of a punchline, but then also as like oh, I see it, or just like. It, it's it's in such slow motion and you know where and the guys he's not necessarily hemming hemming and hung but he's taking a while to get where where is, is it a guy saying saying it or is it a woman no it's a man okay um and uh and he's taking a while to get to his point and i know where he's going <laughs> and i see where the footage is going i'm like okay here we go
2: Wait, well, you knew that was coming oh yeah you were familiar with that lineup No, I just uh, assume that's where he was headed,
0: and and like when you see uh, uh, Ullman. yeah, yeah, Stuart Ullman. yeah, yeah. as you see him stand up and slowly but surely walk around, like oh, I think I see where he's go. Oh, Oh." (laughs) and then once and once it was there, that you know, right when the handshake lines up, I'm like, well, this is all I'm ever going to see now. (laughs) If ever I watch The Shining again, which is likely, uh, especially now, um, it's just like I'm never not going to be able to see that. Not that it's going to ruin the scene for me, but it's like. That's there, and there it is, for, and there's the Minotaur, and uh, so I'm. What I'm saying is, your documentary kind of ruined the film for me. <laughs> so well done, Rodney. Get <laughs> well, out, is, get out of my house. Well,
2: I mean, that's the struggle with spending time on it on on so many kind of things. Mm-hmm. It's like, are you going to destroy this thing you love? You know, I've, I've I've shot a couple of music videos, and going into it, you know, usually you really love the song,
3: mm-hmm. but.
2: You know, you listen to the song fifty times in order to sort of make your plan and time things out how you want to how you wanna shoot it, and then you get on the set and play it a hundred times and then you edit it a hundred times and well before you're done with the project, you know, you never wanna to listen to that song again. <laughs> and if you started this as a labor of love, you know, you've you have thoroughly destroyed this thing no. that used to be your favorite thing in the world. Um and that was a real danger here and you know not that i had any mu- much of a logical strategy to avoid it other than to assume that the shining is a strong enough classic that it can you know hold up to the worst that i have to offer and you know happily enough i've seen the shining a couple of times mm-hmm. you know since since completing, since completing the film question. yeah well i watched it once with my mother-in-law when she was in town and she was going to see the movie and she had never seen the shining ah. you know so you know, so we so, so 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 we watched the movie at home, and then I saw it. You know, at a festival after two three seven. You know, that movie. I mean, there is magic in that movie. You know, and whether it's good or evil magic, is is <laughs> yeah. hard to say sometimes. But I think it might even just be, you know, kind of the the way the camera draws you into the hotel that you know you fall into that you know kind of magic movie trance very very quickly you know and are just you know back into it and you know I hear these little voices and I'll look to see a thing or two but I'm really back right back mm-hmm. you know into the movie and you know happily enough it was able to survive you know me deconstructing it a frame at a time for for 2 years I can still look at frames from that movie and say oh that's interesting and read new people's ideas about what it really means. And that stuff is still spontaneously getting generated. Um, you know, I've, you know, I'm fond of, of of an awful lot of movies, but the list of, of, of the ones that I would have been able to have sit down and executed this project for is pretty slim. (laughs) And,
0: you know, that kind of, to a certain extent puts, doesn't really put to bed, but like, you know, I remember, uh, I think when I first started going to film school I had I, I knew people who were not film students I, they liked movies but not sure. not like I did and uh, they would ask like so when you see a movie now like can you watch it can you let yourself get lost in it or are you just the whole time just constantly judging are you always kind of standing outside it, saying that's a good shot that's good edit that's good performance and uh, and oddly enough uh, I said like well the good ones I can let myself get lost the the ones that are that are fine I, I usually it's like, oh yes, this is very good. But like I'm still kind of standing outside of it. Then of course the bad ones. It's just like this is awful. <laughs> like I'm standing very much outside of it mm-hmm. and, and very aware of my own judgment. But like but yeah, like the good ones, like you know, obviously I mean you spent thousands, if not millions, of hours watching this movie <laughs> uh and you're still still able to get lost in it. Like that's a testament to the film and you and of course your commitment as a viewer to l- allowing yourself to get lost in the film. Um,
2: well, I mean, I think it's there's something even more basic than that. That you know, as long as it's a dark room and you don't have and you're not thumbing through your messages on your phone, that yeah, you know, most movies will trap you in like that. You know, and it, there's that you know alchemy of moving pictures and sound effects that, you know, kind of add up to more than their component parts. I know, like if, you know, again, if w- w- when I was in class and we would be discussing a scene, more often than not, I'd have to turn the sound off if we really want to talk about the way the pictures are cut, because otherwise we're just watching the movie. <laughs> <laughs> you know, even if it's like, let's watch this movie, to t- let's watch this scene just to see how long the editor waits before, like, cutting to the reveal. Mm-hmm. But... You know, it with with a sound up, we all we all just start watching. Oh, oh I forgot. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> that you know you can fall into that trance. You know, really, really quickly. Um, you know, at least I can. And in though I I think that whole all, that whole business about the second screen is going to keep us from from being able to fall into that trance. I, I would
1: hope people aren't just like with commentaries. I would hope that no one is watching a movie for the first time with yeah. the second screen.
0: Well, that's something you you and I mentioned uh just in passing last week is just the idea of people like tweeting while they're watching a movie.
1: I know from following people on Twitter Twitter there are plenty of people who oh, yeah. consider themselves
2: yeah. movie geeks or cinephiles who who do that. Okay. And I find it very I saw puzzling. People. I saw people looking at their smartphones at the world premiere of On the Road in Cannes. And I was like in the uh, are, theater? In the theater, I'm like, aren't ushers going to drag them out bodily in this? Yeah. Like this. This is the single most. You, this 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 is the single biggest church of 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 the yeah, movies yeah. on planet Earth, and yeah. it, so I you know I think that battle is not going so well. no <laughs> You know, you, you, based on that. Um, Did I tell the story
0: on this podcast? I told it on the other one of uh, my Avengers thing.
1: No, you no, asked me specifically not to bring I, it up.
0: It's, it's, in, it's in the ether now, so I'll okay. tell it. Um, and I'll try to tell the, the short version. Um, yeah, a few things bother me more than people talking during movies. Uh, or uh, and, the, and the phone thing is starting to get to me now. Uh, and so I, several months ago I, saw the, uh, I went and saw the Avengers for the second time. And there were these, like, 14-year-old kids. that were, like, running around. And they were being specifically... It wasn't merely people talking, but they were being very, uh, you know, disturbing. That's not the right way to say it. But anyway, disruptive. And so uh, they uh, were moving from one side of the theater to another. It was very frustrating. And then my wife went and got, like, the manager. And, of course, they, these kids seemed to sense when the manager was coming. And so they, like, sat down and very, were very, you know, like the singing frog. Uh, and, so, <laughs> um, and so when the... Uh, so finally, it was towards the end, it's a big action sequence, I'm like, oh, I really want to watch this, and then the kids, like, are, they're sitting towards the front of the theater, and then one kid finally stands up, and he's got his
2: phone to his, his ear, and he's like, hello? I was like, okay, so Well, and when they say hello like that, it means they don't even know who's calling them.
3: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they're just like, oh, what's-
2: <laughs> yeah. oh boy. Uh,
0: and so they uh, so finally I was like, OK, I'm going to go. I'm going to go uh, tell them to be quiet. Like they're probably not going to listen to me, but I'm just going to go say, please be quiet. So I walked down to the front of the theater and that was my intention. I'm going to go and say, hey, guys, can you please be quiet? That was my goal. That's okay. that was the plan. So I got to the front. And I saw that all three of them were on their phones. And I was just like And in my head, like this all happened in a split <laughs> second, but in my head it's like, why are you even in this movie? Like clearly, like you you're not paying it, you're paying more attention to your phone, but the movie is probably distracting you from your phone. The phone is distracting you from the movie. The so Avengers what, is what a you, and The Avengers is loud. Yeah. yeah
3: and fun. <laughs> why
0: why oh. Okay. So when I saw all three of them on their phone at that point, uh it it all fell apart and i in public, in front of a movie theater full of people, not full, but enough. I screamed, shut the fuck up or leave. And what happened? Well, the children were very frightened. Uh, there weren't children. I'm sorry. They're like 14, 15. They're not kids. I'm not screaming at seven year old. I'm not a monster. <laughs> and, uh, but one of the things I saw immediately, aside from their uh, wide eyes, uh, was, uh, my wife in the back of the theater, stand up and immediately leave. It's like, uh, it's, like, it's like, that's probably a good call. And so, um, so then I walked out and, uh, come to find out later. And so I was just like, so I was upset at myself for like losing it, you know, losing my shit and all that. Uh, and then, uh, and, and Jen like calmed me down and said like, Hey, you know, it's fine. It's not a big deal. There's no, you know, no one you knew in the theater. I got a text then from one of our bloggers saying, "Hey, way to yell at those kids." I was like, "Oh shit, what have I done?" And so it turned out to like it, it was a very big, like, emotional thing, and I, I felt really bad afterwards and all that. And and so it turned, but now it's kind of a, an amusing story. But it's just like, man, like it. I, I almost never have like a big eruption, but like that thing, that like just devaluing not, not merely other people's experience of this thing that is supposed to be communal, but the thing itself just saying like, Oh yeah, there's this thing on the screen and it's merely a place to be. It's it's nothing that requires our attention. It's nothing that requires, uh, any thought. It's just, I'm in a movie theater. I might as well be on the street or in a restaurant. It doesn't matter. Movies don't matter.
2: And, uh, so all this was happening in my mind in the moment. And, uh, Boy oh boy! So, well, you're gonna, you're gonna have to st- you going you're, you're gonna just stick around the Alamo Draft House. <laughs> I know. Your... Maybe I should move.
1: <laughs> uh, oh, I was gonna tell my. I, I think I told my podcast podcast before my two stories that I'm happy that I've actually gotten people one time during the Hurt Locker. A guy two rows ahead of me. It was like an 11 p.m. or 11:30 p.m. showing on a Tuesday night. It was not very well attended, but there was a guy two rows ahead of me just on his phone the entire time. So I got up, I walked down the aisle, I walked he was so in his phone he didn't see me coming i walked right up next to him i did the sort of like friendly menacing thing where i put my hand on the back of his chair and leaned in real close and i just was like hey can you do me a favor and shut that off and the guy like he went "Ah!" and then he shut it off and then the one the the only time I, i think ever been able to fully channel the uh the sort of intimidating gravitas of my father was one of the times that I was seeing uh, Scott Pilgrim, one of the many times I went to see Scott Pilgrim versus the world. The movie was just starting, and there were, again, like probably 14-year-old kids. There was like three of them behind, in the row behind me. Oh, <laughs> and they were the movie was starting, and they just weren't <laughs> shutting up, weren't shutting up. And I just leaned over and looked at them sort of over the top of my glasses, and I said, hey, knock it off. <laughs> and then they knocked it off. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, those are my only two successes.
0: <laughs> yeah, there was that time I went and saw Cold Mountain with my friend uh, Willie, who has unfortunately since passed away. But he was a very large man, and uh, so this guy was talking on his phone right behind us, and we thought like, okay, the, it, it kept sounding like he was about to wrap up his conversation. Then he started giving some, started find, like, he's like, hey, so what? Like, what are your plans later? He's like, okay, well, how do you get there? It's like, okay, all right, this is not this conversation's not stopping. So then my friend Willie uh, looked back, and again, my friend was he was like four hundred pounds, a very large man, and so he's like, hey dude, shut the fuck up or I'm gonna or I'm gonna shove that phone up your fucking ass. And the guy's like, I gotta go. (laughs) Now, do you have any stories of being incredibly aggressive towards people who uh, do not seem to respect film?
2: they're all just walter Middy fantasies <laughs> <laughs> um you know i've I, I i i've never really been the type to pick a fight with strangers um yeah. i never used to be i <laughs> would love to be like
1: george do the george costanza thing Yeah. You're just like i will take you outside and i'll, and I'll show, show you what, what it's, it's like, like. <laughs> anyway um
0: that was a fun thing in which our guest didn't get to talk. I'm sorry. <laughs> no,
2: it's cool. It's all. It's a. It's it's, it's, it's on message. I, know, I went. I, I I went and you know talked to the manager once or twice, but yeah. <laughs> I said excuse me, and I th- I I think I I said excuse me, and you know put my finger to my lips, but but now you can say. Yeah.
0: Excuse me, I'm Rodney Asher, director of Room 237. I'd really like you to be quiet. And they're like, "Oh, I'm sorry, sir. I'm sorry." Well,
2: <laughs> no, we'll see how that works at the at the, at the Highland Three um, on Three Dollar Tuesdays.
3: <laughs> um,
1: so what? Uh, um, uh, okay, we're we're at about an hour, so we can start uh, looking toward wrapping things up here. How? Um, what's coming up? Obviously, Room uh, Room 237 again. Uh, available on demand starting march 29th and in in new york theaters march 29th los angeles theaters april 5th and so on and so forth
2: what else do we have to look forward to nothing right away i mean there's an audio project that i did with a guy that um we haven't announced yet that will be coming out over the summer and uh, i've started interviews for a pair of new documentaries um Neither of them have caught fire into the, you know, all-consuming obsession yet and, mm-hmm. and sort of trying to develop some, well, a bunch of other stuff. But it's probably going to be a little while before yeah. you, certainly before you see anything, it, it, before you see another full length. Um, there's a short that I finished, but I'm probably going to deconstruct it and um, pay, fold it into a longer thing. So... Has uh, this has this uh, opened a lot of
0: doors for you? Like, I mean, do people know? Like, oh, they know about this this film and they want to work with you.
2: Hypothetically, oh, okay. Well, obviously, <laughs> you know, you got, you got Marina and Sarah out there. Yeah, they're oh, doing yeah. a great job. And the, and Time you, know, the you know, the movie, the movie certainly get, the, the you know the, the word of the movie's getting out. And I've met a lot of very interesting people who all have who all seem very enthusiastic, but. You know, nobody's written a check. Nobody's, <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, I got a, I, I, I got a very exciting offer to produce um, a segment of a podcast. Um, but, you know, I like to think that I, I, I feel optimistic about my future. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that's good. This took a turn. <laughs> Are you okay? No, no it's, okay.
1: I, I think it's very fortuitous, obviously for you, but also for all of us as movie lovers that, that we're getting to see Room Two Room Two Thirty Seven because we weren't at Sundance. the The word during Sundance twenty twelve a lot of a lot of the things I was hearing was this movie's great. I don't know if anyone will ever get to see it. Yeah, because of possible copyright issues with all the footage
2: that that you used. And and so I feel very, very happy that that people are going to get to see it. It's been a long road. And, you know, the last year is really so much of it has has just been spent traveling to support the film. And, you know, me and Tim, you know, are still working on, you know, all the loose ends. I mean, it's such a small production that the two of us, you know, still handle You know all the ninety percent of the business that's coming in, and half of our weeks are, (laughs) in in in, you know half of our time is still spent dotting eyeball dotting eyes on this thing. Mm Um, you know there was that weird sense of um, this might be the last chance that people ever get to see it, and that was probably you know worked very much to our advantage to get people. (laughs) What were you (laughs) thinking about that when you made it? When when I when I made it, I know I didn't. I didn't think the situation was going to be that people weren't going to be able to see it. I thought the situation was going to be that nobody would have heard of it or have had any interest in seeing it. Um, was that you know it was made like the it, it it was made you know certainly the first half of it up to up to the first rough cut you know for next to nothing you know mm-hmm. assuming that you know me and Tim's time has no value um, but certainly we didn't spend a lot of a lot of cash on it so that if it only had a couple of public screenings and then went underground that would have been fine you know mm-hmm. it was never seen as a business it was, god forbid it was never seen as any sort of business venture uh-huh. the idea that it would play you know in 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 theaters where people charged admission and that you know they there was a um uh, a, that actually served popcorn uh-huh. seemed like a bizarre fantasy <laughs> uh, you know i no, i mean i thought it would play at the echo park film center mm-hmm. it, or in san francisco at artist television access you know and you know then cut into nine pieces on youtube um <laughs> you know luckily enough luckily enough after the rough cut you know um it it things started to snowball and we were able to create a bigger site we were able to create a bigger soundtrack and sound design and make some of the graphics and things nicer but um yeah it, it wasn't as if there's any sort of plan for something like this to happen from it. You know, my my biggest hope is that it would would play a couple times, some small group of insane people would respond to it, and it would make it that much easier to get the next one off the ground. That would be a real movie.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, I have a... So I have a friend uh, named Kevin Porter who made a uh, much... uh, loved a uh, supercut of Aaron Sorkin lines. Oh yeah. And uh and we I interviewed him for the for the show. And it's interesting. So he just did this thing. Yeah. And then it got a lot of uh got a lot of traction online and eventually he got uh either an email or a phone call from Aaron Sorkin himself. Um and given the, you know, the nature of room 237, 237 has anybody including like a like a Stephen King like do you know if if they have gotten to see it or have they responded to it? Have you gotten anything like that?
2: Nothing for the most part. No. Okay. Um, I'd love to, Stephen King is actually kind of the person that I'm most excited to hear from because in a way, if this is some kind (laughs) of weird version of telephone, you know, he's the one who started it Yeah. you know, and you know, famously he wasn't crazy about, you know, the shining when it came out, um, and if you watch his miniseries version of it and listen to his commentary, it's pretty clear, at least to me, that, you know, I think part of his disappointment to the movie was it was a really personal story for him. It was very mm-hmm. autobiographical, mm-hmm. you know, so, you know, no matter what someone else was going to do with it, if they were going to take that element out and yeah. make it not about not about Stephen King, yeah. Um, that was going to bother him, and that makes total sense to me. Yeah, you know, but so now, so you know, one of the kind of questions you know that we kind of ask in the movie is, well, who does The Shining belong to? Mm-hmm. You know, is it Stephen King's The Shining? Is it Stanley Kubrick's The Shining? Is it does it belong to w- any one particular viewer? Um, yeah. So, you know, Stephen, I, I would. Stephen King, I think, would be one of the most interesting people to to, to get to, to get a response from
0: because I did have that thought, especially when when the person talks about the uh, the red beetle crushed yeah. by the car, and sure. she's like, oh, that does seem like a pretty clear message. But um,
2: but you but know, like, I imagine Stephen King has also got a pretty good sense of humor about I think things, so, yeah. in that he wouldn't be, in that just because one of our interviewees thinks that that scene is Stanley Kubrick's Fu to Stephen King, yeah doesn't mean that Stephen king is going to take this film as <laughs> yeah. as that kind of thing to right. him but it's I, I like the idea and i had this thought while i was while i was watching the
0: the film um you know all these people talking about like well what did stanley kubrick mean? you know what was he trying to say with the shining and then like Stephen king and i don't say this like in in a in a, in a critical way of him or anything of him saying like you know i was trying to do things with the book <laughs> he could have been tried he could have tried to do what i did but he chose not to do that so screw me i guess like it's because yeah it is an incredible because i i actually uh i own the miniseries and i remember liking it quite a bit and you watch that and you realize like he was really trying to do something and if you had imagine if you had like Kubrick really being on board with like this this uh, dissection of like alcoholism and that kind of thing like it would have been incredibly pow- it's it's powerful already but like imagine if if he was very purposeful about inc- keeping that in it would have been very interesting and, I, and The Shining would be considered to this day like one of the best addiction movies uh, substance abuse movies ups- movies about obsession although it's it's that now um, that. You know, more so than, like, Lost Weekend or Requiem for a Dream or anything like that, even though it's not really about that. Uh, and so, I don't know. It's I do sometimes wonder, like, if they had had... If they had stuck more closely to the book, but you had the brilliance of a Stanley Kubrick as a filmmaker, but then I guess, you know, he's, he would not let himself be dictated to by something that previously <laughs> existed. So
2: Yeah, well, um, I mean, how many of these... Hypothetical Stanley Kubrick movies would we like to see? Yeah, <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> right. yeah. I, I'm, I, I especially, I especially mourn the absence of Lunatic at Large, which I only came to realize was a thing recently when they uncovered that script by him and uh, Jim Thompson, mm-hmm. which must have put it, you know, back, you know, around, you know, the Killing Pads of Glory time, and mm-hmm. it was, you know, some, you know, crazy crime story about like an escaped lunatic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, and I would love if they, you know, I I'd have been especially excited if there was, you know, one more of those noirs and maybe one that went you know a little bit into absurdity. Yeah. Um, yeah, cuz The Killing is an amazing movie. Oh yeah. You know, and it's an absolutely, you know, and it's an absolutely legitimate film noir and you'd think, you know, most people think of Stanley Kubrick as, you know, the 2001 guy, but you know, he was of his time for a very long time.
0: Yeah, I st- the one that that always strikes me, and I don't say this in a, uh, again, I don't mean to say this in a negative way, but like the one that always strikes me is like incongruous with the rest of his is, uh, the rest of his filmography is Spartacus.
3: Well, um,
1: and not, I know that yeah. I know that other people think that as well, but it's like you and know also, you watch that wasn't he didn't like he didn't develop that movie right. Right, that was uh, I can't remember who was supposed to do it originally, but there was a yeah yeah anyway and and yeah Kirk Douglas
2: sorry. except for a couple of touches I don't even necessarily get that there's like a look and a feel mm-hmm. to a Kubrick movie, even though the technology changes through the years, mm-hmm. um, that I don't sense a lot in, that I, that I, I don't sense as much in Spartacus, you know, as the movies that bookend it. Um, it's you know, still a pretty good, still a pretty good Roman empire movie. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> with some, with some really interesting characters that I think actually might be, could be viewed as like Kubrickian in, in the, uh, in the performances and in certain yeah. some of the scenes like, you know, you know Charles yeah. Lawton and Peter Ustinov and stuff well, like And that.
2: those guys kind of tie into, you know, sort of the corrupt military and paths of glory. And mm-hmm. there's a whole thing, you know, there's a whole reading of his filmography as, you know, sort of standing up to a corrupt authority, uh, uh, mm-hmm. to corrupt authority figures. Yeah. So, you know, absolutely. It ties into, into that kind of stuff.
1: Uh, as a big fan of The Sopranos, I can't fully watch Spartacus without hearing Joe Pantoliano going, they didn't have flat tops in ancient Rome. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so real quick, I wanted to ask you, Ronnie, you, you mentioned you've been traveling with the film a bit. Are you are you going to be doing any more traveling as it rolls A out? little bit. Um, Anything you can announce? Yeah, no.
2: Well, I'm going to New York for the premiere at the end of the month. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to Wisconsin for a festival, and I will... Not a hundred percent confirmed, but I'm probably going to go to Miami and San Francisco um, in April. I'll, I'll be traveling around a little bit awesome. in April to some of the um, commercial premieres. So, where can people find
1: news about that, and where can people find your uh, your other work or, or any more information
0: about you? Which is which is worth seeking out. Like yeah. we talked about it on your last appearance, but like you
2: know, the S from Hell and uh, Dog Days, right? Oh well, yeah, which library. I loved. Yeah. And uh, ama- and Rust are amazing in that. Oh uh, yeah,
0: both friends both <laughs> good friends, good friends of the show. Yeah, they're and some then great guys. Uh, Visions of Terror, mm-hmm. Visions of Terror, which I yeah. think is amazing. Uh, Somebody goofed, which which I, as a Christian, have a very specific
2: uh, well, uh, relationship with. Have you seen Tim Kirk, um, producer of Two Three Seven, did another one of those Jack Chick movies in the same compilation? Oh no, I don't. Think he so. did. He did Bewitched.
0: Okay, no, I, I don't didn't know if you saw. One. There's
2: a compilation Hot Chicks where it's like. Maybe eight or nine uh, films inspired by Jack Chick, hmm. um, and he did the one. Um, well, it's kind of interesting. Like it starts with the puppet show, and they're talking about what what's actually incredibly prescient that how you know Satan is trying to poison the minds of uh, of the youth through corrupt occult television programming. Mm-hmm. And They actually use the phrase like vampire TV shows, which back then he might have been overstating the case but nowadays yeah it was just dark shadows back then and now it's yeah now we got you know now now it's there's probably more vampire programming than non-vampire programming (laughs) yeah (laughs) but now if only he knew that it would just be an
0: an intellectual corruption
2: (laughs) (laughs) um yeah no so so, you know tim's bewitched is one of the best is 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 is, is one of the really really good ones Hmm. um you know, of Jack Chick short film and in the cinema. But as David said, where can people yeah, find your, this? Website, okay. your Twitter, whatever? Yeah, no, well, RodneyAsher dot com, and there's a C and Asher. Um, there's Room two three seven Movie dot com, which has like links to like all the screenings, and you know, once iTunes and stuff goes up at the end of the month, there should be, be one stop shopping there. And there's a Room two three seven um, Facebook page where um, you know more sorts of there's a pretty lively discussion going on and you know me or someone else will post you know all sorts of interesting stray kubrick or 237 related things you know up there as we find them. there was an excellent jack torrance action figure that um that 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 that, that just went up for sale recently Hmm. and um Sometimes we'll share new new th- theories about The Shining. John Fel Ryan had a had a great one about the um guy in the bear suit on Monday, and Julie, uh, Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, that was great, right? Mm-hmm. And Julie Kearns expanded on thoughts that the book that Jack Torrance is writing is in fact The Shining, and the scenes of him writing are the only are, are the only things happening on the little real, real plane of the movie, and everything else are. I think fantasies and, huh. and and things like this. So it's sort of a Charlie Kaufman kind of yeah. piece of metafiction. Um, yeah, so all, all, all over the all over the internet. Yeah, all, so room two thirty seven that, movie. Where, that's where two thirty seven came from, and that's where it's going back into, <laughs> and that's where it's going back into. So,
1: uh, room two three seven moviecom is where you can find out about screenings. That's the homepage. Yeah, uh, and uh, of course it's on video on demand starting uh, March 29th. Uh, you can find me and Tyler and our uh, work uh, podcast and writing and otherwise and all sorts of stuff at com. You can email us, David at com or Tyler at com. Follow me on Twitter at The Pretension. Tyler is on Twitter at More Lessons. That's the official Twitter of his other podcast, More Than One Lesson, which is
0: at com. Yes, and uh, right now uh, we've been doing some mini-sodes talking about our, our ten favorite movies. So. There's one about... Recently, there's one about the Maltese Falcon. There's one about Jules and Jim. And then, in a, by the time this posts, in a couple of days, keep an eye out uh, because we will be joined by a friend of the show, Jason Eakin, to discuss uh, Zero Dark Thirty, and the companion film will be uh, The Pledge.
1: Awesome. Um, my other podcast, which I... I swear, uh, it has been since December, but I swear I I'll do it again someday. Is uh, the television review sh- show previously on? I also have another television review podcast that's coming out in April. I'm not sure if it's been officially announced yet, so I don't think I can say anything uh, more about it, but keep your eye out for that. Uh, that's it. So previously on show.com, and then there's going to be another one. What do you have? More
0: things. Uh, WonderCon.
1: Oh, and we yeah, we will be at, at WonderCon. Um, I don't know if I'm going Friday. I'm going Saturday and Sunday.
0: I will be there on Friday.
1: Okay. Um, and again, I might I, I haven't decided if I can take it off work or not. Um, so, yeah, get a hold of us at the emails and Twitters that I've just mentioned if you want to uh, find out where we're going to be at Comic-Con, and I'll uh, we'll probably maybe do some mini-podcasts or or, or, sure. or write-ups or something from what we see at Comic-Con, or, or WonderCon, rather. I'm excited about that. Um, so, that's that. Ronnie, thank you for being
2: here. This has been a lot of fun. Sure. Thanks thanks for having me. Thanks for your interest in this crazy little movie, even if you know, our publicists had to twist your arms to get me on here. <laughs>
1: no, I didn't know that it was. I I, I I,
0: thought perhaps you'd gotten too big for us. We, I was scared not to have you on. You know, they
2: said they'd, they'd destroy us. You know, you, in could, have, you could have just emailed me. We're still. A,
1: <laughs> and we will in the future. We look forward to having awesome. you back uh, time and time again. So, again, thank you for being here. Thank she you was... at home for listening.
0: And we'll get you next time. Bye. Right. Bye.